This is E2B, Energy to Business, a podcast by Opportune, where we bring you in-house expertise that serves all energy sectors. We examine emerging financial and technology trends and provide a broad perspective on ways to stay ahead, create opportunities, and execute market strategies. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of E2B, Energy to Business, an Opportune podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. And folks, thanks so much for joining us on another episode of the show. We appreciate you listening along for some broader energy industry thought leadership. As we explore today's topic, make sure that you're heading to our website, opportune.com. Again, opportune.com for more information on our solutions and services and to get some more opportune content, including episodes of the podcast, blog, video, articles, and more. If you'd like to subscribe to the podcast, you can do so on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Just hit that subscribe button and you'll have a full catalog of previous conversations as well as notifications when we drop new ones. So for today's episode of the show, we're digging into a crop of technologies that are guiding many of the energy industry's investments of tomorrow. That would be carbon capture, utilization, and storage technologies, otherwise known as CCUS. An emission reduction set of processes and technologies that capture CO2 from fuel combustion or industrial work, CCUS Tech has also introduced the need to store said CO2, and one leading methodology is underground storage. Not only does this and storage process act as part of the broader transition to net zero as a world, but also provide short-term opportunities for energy companies to realize some new business opportunities. So as use of these technologies grows, we'll offer insights and strategies on how to maneuver the incentives and infrastructure around managing CUS tech and subsequent CO2 storage. Here to give us insights for the day, we're joined by Steve Hendrickson, president of Ralph E. Davis Associates, and Harrison Perrin, petroleum engineer at Ralph E. Davis Associates. Steve, Harrison, great to have you both on. Thank you so much for giving us your insights today, and I want to go ahead and get right into it with our first set of questions. So we brought up uh, general storage of CO2, but I'm curious generally, what are the primary differences between underground natural gas storage and deep saline injection of CO2? Where are they the same? Where are they different? So the, the primary, I mean, the obvious similarities are we're injecting a gas and doing underground formation, right? We're going to use... Uh, well bores to do that um, and so there's a lot of similarity just right there um, there's some differences though i guess the primary differences difference would be that uh, number one we don't intend to take this gas back out once it's underground the intent is for it to stay there permanently and so not only does that mean we don't have to worry about retrieving it we also have this concern about making sure that it is actually going to stay place for a long and stay in place for a indefinitely, essentially. And so there's some monitoring aspects. But I think probably one of the most significant practical differences is the fact that under the current regulatory regime, um, the, the two wells that are used to inject the gas are classified differently. One is uh, what's referred to as a class two well, that's what's used in natural gas storage. And in underground sequestration, we use a class six well. Uh, those have different requirements, but also they're regulated by different bodies. They were created under the clean under the Safe Drinking Water Act, but um, 
primacy was secured by most states for the class two wells, so they regulate them themselves. Most states did not go to the trouble of getting primacy for class six wells, so the EPA still regulates those. Um, and so there are different regulatory hurdles and different, right, uh, different agencies that we have to deal with. I would say the only thing that I would add is that um, the EPA is a lot more rigorous with their regulations than uh, the state agencies are for, for natural gas wells. So for example, um, with CO2 storage, even once you're done injecting, you have to, to monitor after, um, after closure for approximately 50 years unless you get special permission. So it's, it's quite a bit different between the two in terms of the regulations. Perfect. Thanks for that distinction. So with that in mind, what do you think are the factors that are motivating CCUS technology's general large-scale deployment in the energy industry today? What is pushing that tech forward? Give us some concrete examples. Well, storing carbon underground doesn't make any money on its own, right? There's nobody that pays for that. It certainly is costly. And so the only uh, impetus to do it is either uh, a carrot or a stick. And right now we have a carrot in the form of these Section 45Q tax credits. Um, they, uh, they've been in place for a, a number of years, but there was some ambiguity about them, about how they would be implemented and what sort of projects they would apply to. And so the IRS last year clarified some of their interpretation of the law and how they were going to enforce that. Uh, and that's made it in part easier um, for companies to start moving forward with those projects. But I think also there's just a continual evolution in public perception about the importance of removing carbon from the atmosphere. Uh, this is an important way to do so with a minimal disruption on our current power generation uh, methods, right? Um, we primarily produce power in the U.S. The number one source, of course, is natural gas, and that has a you know, pretty large carbon um, emission. Uh, because we have these large stationary sources of carbon dioxide, sequestration is a natural way to deal with those problems, um, short of just not using that as a power source. And really, our economy is just not to the point where that's viable. And just to follow up a little bit more on this distinction uh, between uh, underground natural gas storage versus CO2 storage, what would you see as the main similarities between these two activities in terms of uh, their phases of development? So, for example, feasibility, monitoring, modeling, general operations, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, go ahead and connect those dots for us. Yeah, I think, uh, you know... It's very typical when you have any sort of uh, construction project or sort of um, industrial operation, there's going to be a feasibility phase, a design phase, construction, operation, and then some sort of decommissioning. So these projects have that as well. Um, I think some of the differences are, well, certainly, as Harrison mentioned, this closure phase and post-closure is much longer than typically we would have, say, in an oil and gas operation. Well, where once the wells are abandoned, we are almost always completely done with that area. We very rarely have to return to a location because of something that is improperly abandoned. Or do we find that uh, we were asked to monitor anything in any sort of detail? Because of the concern about potential for leaks, and of course, 
where the government has paid this credit, they want to make sure that the thing they paid the credit for is actually achieving the thing they intended. There's this higher standard um, towards um, ensuring post-closure integrity. And so that has to be not only done, it has to be planned for up front and demonstrated that you have a plan and have a plan for who's going to pay for that. Uh, because at that point, there's no longer any credits being generated. So somebody still has to do that. Um, Harrison, you may have some comments on some of the design aspects or feasibility study aspects and how those are different. So I would say that um, kind of similar to the regulatory piece, the, the feasibility studies are significantly more in depth for carbon capture than for uh, underground gas storage. Um, for example, the DOE has a, a multi-page paper of you know, all the requirements that have to be met um, you know, for a feasibility study. And that just doesn't really exist for, for underground gas storage. So there's a lot more, a lot more parts involved. You know, one of the things that we that it kind of is unique uh, or different between the two scenarios from a design perspective is most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, a natural gas storage project is going to occur in a in either a depleted reservoir or some other place where we have some wellbore penetrations. And those penetrations give us data about the reservoir properties. Um, you know, we're able to log, obviously, if we have penetrations. These saline aquifers, well, they're not expected to have hydrocarbons. They may not have a single well bore in them. And so the amount of data we have at the um, early stage is very limited in the, in the feasibility and pre-feasibility stages. So a lot of assumptions of assumptions have to be made. And those assumptions, because there's uncertainty in them, there's a lot of consideration of the risk around those assumptions, which is a little little bit different than actually having a lot of data and being able to rely on it. You have to make assumptions and then test, uh, well, what if my assumptions are wrong? Um, so that, I think that is a little bit different workflow, but you're dealing with some of the, obviously you're dealing with some of the same characteristics. How big is the reservoir? How much can it hold? How fast will fluids move into it? What will happen once they're in there? Well, we typically, we use reservoirs that did have natural gas or, or oil in them at some point in the past. And so we know, we know a lot about them. That's one of the good things. We know that they're also, uh, that they have seal capacity. And we probably know a good bit about how much their volume is. Um, in the case of these saline aquifers, you know, a lot of times they're just going to be in places where we, we, we want them to be um, close to the sources. And that just may be in a location that's not um, attractive for hydrocarbon accumulations. So may have been some early drilling, didn't really turn up anything. There could be other reasons why we don't think that area is prospective for hydrocarbons. So wells were never drilled to explore, or very few were. That's in a way, it's it's a it's one of the it has a good side to it because one of the potential, probably the most significant leak pathways out of a reservoir are other well bores. If those well bores are not known or they weren't properly cemented or properly abandoned, those provide pathways for fluids to get out. Um, in the case of these unexplored reservoirs, well, we don't have that problem, but we also don't have the knowledge that we gain from those wells having been drilled into it.
Naturally, I'm sure our audience wants to uh, know how to put some of this captured CO2 to work. So could you also share some of the applications or uses of the CO2 that you see as particularly applicable that upstream oil and gas companies can leverage after the CO2 is captured and then stored underground. Right. So if we're thinking strictly about sequestration, which is, you know, long-term storage, it's, it's intended to stay there. So there, you know, there is no plan for that to come back out. The other significant use of man-made or you know man-made man-generated co2 is in enhanced oil recovery and there are a number of places already where that's being done um, the earliest co2 floods in west texas use co2 that was extracted from natural gas you know streams of streams of natural gas whose co2 content was too high to sell had to have the co2 removed and so the early floods utilized that um, there are some fertilizer plants and other plants in the Midwest that generate a high purity CO2 stream that is being used for EOR. But by and large, most of the EOR that's occurring in the US uses natural occurring sources um, that occur primarily those that are up around Southeastern Colorado, um, Southern Colorado, I'll say. And then there's uh, a large source over in Central Mississippi as well. Um, there are some a few other anthropogenic sources that are used and probably a couple of other natural sources I'm not familiar with, but that's, that kind of gives you a quick overview of it. I think, Harrison, you saw in your research that there is an expectation that some of this captured CO2 will, will be used in EOR, but perhaps you could comment on kind of the expectation for the relative amount. So I, I would say that um, for these projects, that are storage projects there there isn't any intent uh, to use it the the captured co2 for eor at a later point i think the purpose if they're going to to you know undergo this storage process in a saline formation they're going to to keep the the co2 there you know one of the challenges um with um eor is just the you know it's the proximity of the field to the, um, to the source of the CO2. And there's gonna be sources of CO2 that are captured in order to keep them from being emitted. They just aren't near fields that have EOR potential. They may not be near even an oil producing province. Um, I haven't really uh, dug into the details, but I understand that Oxy is very interested in direct air capture of CO2, right? Um, which involves taking, you know, taking it from a very low concentration in the atmosphere and, and extracting it to a more pure stream. And I believe their intent there is to use it for EOR purposes. Now, the beauty of that method, if the economics work, is the air obviously is present everywhere. And so if you have a, a field that is amenable to CO2 flooding, um, you can construct this air capture equipment or direct air capture equipment, you know, very close to that and minimize the uh, transmission costs. Yeah, I just wanted to point out, um, you mentioned that part of why, you know, EOR isn't maybe more widespread is because of the location of the reservoirs. And I believe that's part of why this underground storage and saline formations is attractive because these formations are, you know, located in the Midwest, for example. 
Yeah, and certainly along the Gulf Coast, where we have very large uh, amount of emissions, um, there's saline aquifers all over. You mentioned this a little earlier, but one of the main incentivizers for additional investments in CCUS projects uh, is coming from the Department of the Treasury and the IRS. Just for context, again, in January, both of those departments issued final regulations that amended and clarified the Section 4.5Q tax credit. Uh, So could you offer us some more insight on that tax credit and whether or not you think it's going to catalyze any innovative or large-scale CCUS technology deployment? Or do you think it's going to have the opposite effect? Will this tax credit potentially stall progress? What do you see as the overall impact and why? Well, I think as we mentioned earlier, it's, it's what is catalyzing the interest around it right now. Um, the National Petroleum Council put out a pretty detailed study of the cost of CO2 sequestration, the sources of CO2 in the United States, and what their estimate of the uh, level of credit that would be needed to incentivize capture at, you know, at, I think they probably dealt with 90% of the stationary uh, emissions. There was obviously as they get smaller and smaller, they they start to neglect those. But what that study, and I think uh, Harrison, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that was published in 20, 2019. So it's very recent. And what we see from that is that there is a very large volume of CO2 emissions that will not be captured if the only reason to capture them was to capture it was the credit. Basically, another way said under their estimates, the cost of capture, transmission, and storage is significantly higher than what the credit is currently delivering. Mm. So what what I believe, my personal opinion is that we're going to see two things happen. One is as more people implement these programs, the economies of scale will occur, costs will come down and make some of these projects more attractive. I think also though, that so long as there is uh, public uh, desire that gets translated into political will, then there will be uh, continued enhancement in the credit regime to make more of these look attractive um, or, or become economic. Um, so long as that's what people want to happen. And I think just looking around right now, there seems to be a pretty high desire for that. As more companies break into the CCUS space and deploy these technologies at scale, what might be some of the most uh, notable difficulties that saline CCUS companies face compared with their counterparts in underground natural gas storage? Uh, Are are there uh, any more structural or market dynamics that are shaping this style of technology use and storage compared to, again, natural gas storage? Well, we talked about the regulatory regime. That's going to be the, the kind of the big hurdle. We also talked a little bit about the absence of data. So um, if you're I'm referring specifically to downhole data, um, there may be, you know, in addition to like the, the reservoir data we referred to from well logging, uh, seismic would be useful to have to understand where the structure is and its dimensions. Uh, some of these um, projects are located in areas because they because they weren't um, prospective 
for hydrocarbons, they don't have any seismic to speak of that's been shot. Or if they do, it's going to be very dated 2D seismic that was shot, I mean, you know, really 60s and 70s vintage exploratory seismic that uh, may not really be uh, all that useful. Um, and then, of course, another thing I think that's a, that's a big difference is, is just the financing regime. Um, this stuff is expensive. And it is um, it, because of the way the credit is structured, you only can get the credit to the extent that you have taxable taxes, a taxable income and those taxes to offset it. At least that's the way it's currently structured. So what that may mean is someone who has the potential to do a project, like I'm, I'm an emitter and maybe I'm an ethanol plant. And for whatever reason, due to my current tax deductions and all the other credits I might be getting, I just don't have all that much tax that I'm paying. And therefore I can't really take advantage of these credits. Well, how do financial structures get created that allow money to come in and credits to flow to the right people in order to uh, actually fund and, and build these projects, especially when they have uh, what looks to be a relatively long lead time, not just due to the design aspect, construction aspect, but this whole regulatory and permitting aspect, which, um, you know, as, as what we've heard, you know, just anecdotally, that these, these permits, since they're all running through the EPA right now, and there's increased interest, um, they're maybe as long as two years to get one of these things approved. And all the while, whoever's pushing that has costs. And so who's going who's gonna to pay that? The track record that the, the underground uh, natural gas storage industry has compared to the, the lack of you know, commercialization of carbon storage, that's one of those things you know, that the public doesn't you know, have anything to base their experiences off of since there have only been two projects uh, in, in North America. And I think that that's, you know, the more projects that there are, obviously, like you mentioned, the, the cost will go down. But I think that um, I think that that's a real challenge that we haven't had very many large scale projects. Well, we've been talking a lot about the crossover similarities, differences, again, between underground natural gas storage and deep saline injection of CO2 uh, and broader CCUS tech. Maybe just. For a little clarity before we wrap, why would you say it's essential to develop analog studies between these two technologies and these two processes? Why should we be continuing to connect the dots here? What's the benefit to the rest of the energy industry and uh, potentially the future use cases for CCUS? Yeah, and I think maybe I want to be cautious about how we use the term analog. So it's not as if we say, well, we're going to go do carbon sequestration over here. And, but yet we've got this uh, high, this natural gas storage field, which is 50 miles away, and somehow that's an analog for what we're going to do uh, in this sequestration project. What we're pointing out in our uh, in our writings um, is that the process of designing, constructing a natural gas storage project is very similar in many respects, especially from a um, from a downhole perspective um, as the carbon sequestration project would be. So we look to the workflows. Uh, we, say, we would say that the workflows around doing a carbon storage project are very analogous to the same workflows that we've used in natural gas storage projects. And as Harrison pointed out, there's only been a couple of these CO2 storage projects have been implemented in the US. 
There are others worldwide, but uh, there aren't that many. But yet we've got hundreds of natural gas storage projects. And so we have a very uh, well-developed track record about well, what has to be done from a um, well-designed, a geologic, or reservoir engineering perspective to understand um, if these projects are going to work, how they're going to perform, et cetera. And so as we are, uh, as an industry, moving into this new realm, the history we've had with natural gas storage over the last 50 plus years is a, is a great place to look to understand the process we need to go through. And I think on that note, that does it for our conversation today. So thank you so much to our two guests for sharing some perspective on CCUS technology, uh, some of the challenges around storing captured CO2, similarities to underground natural gas storage, differences, and again, some strategies for implementing all of this at scale in an efficient way. So thank you again to our two guests Steve Hendrickson, president of Ralphie Davis Associates, and Harrison Perrin, petroleum engineer at Ralph E. Davis Associates. Thanks for setting it up. Thank you. It's been a pleasure chatting to both of you. And thank you to everyone for listening to another episode of E2B Energy to Business, an opportune podcast. If you like what you heard and want to listen to previous episodes, make sure that you're heading to our website, opportune.com. Again, opportune.com for more information on everything we broke down today and for some more opportune content. And make sure you're subscribing on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. Till next time. <laughs>